Again, I'll be reading from Ephesians 4, and that is verse 11 through 13. And I'll be reading in the New King James Version. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I hope you have access to a Bible, and if you will, please turn to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. I want to begin reading at verse 43 through the end of the chapter. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Incidentally, I stop after verse 43 to say that if people had heard this, they had heard part truth and part error. Indeed, Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor. There is no biblical teaching that says hate your enemy. That was a creation on part of some who would teach what the Bible doesn't teach. In verse 44, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'm going to ask you to listen to an imaginary conversation. And the two parties in this conversation are you and me. I get to go first. I ask you, are you perfect? And you look at that, you look at me with that look that you sometimes give me and say, are you trying to be a smart aleck? Nobody is perfect. It is impossible to be perfect. I reply, but then why does Jesus say, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect? And you think about that for a moment and you say, that's just your translation. And I respond, no. I checked 25 translations and 24 of them used the word perfect twice in verse 48. Pretty significant. Conversation's over. Perhaps we need to back up a bit. 
Are we sure that we're both talking about the same thing when we talk about being perfect? The truth is, we know that we are all imperfect when it comes to living a sinless life. Romans 3.23 was correct when Paul wrote it. It had always been correct. It would always be correct. It still is correct. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even after we obey the gospel, we recognize that there are those times that we don't do what we should or we do what we shouldn't do. We sometimes stumble. This morning at Stafford, I heard a very humble prayer by a man who confessed to God that we do stumble and that sometimes we do fall. What was it that John wrote? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So no one will stand and say, I've never sinned. If you do, you've just done it again. But the the question is, what does Jesus mean when he says, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? A couple of our brothers in the church have written commentaries that I believe are inaccurate and mislead people on this verse. One one writer in particular stresses the idea that Jesus is asking us to do something he knows we can't do. And the reason he's asking us to do what he knows we can't do is so that we will realize how unworthy we are of God's salvation. I don't believe that. I have taught for more than 50 years that Jesus never asked us to do anything that's impossible for us to do. And and if Jesus was asking us to do the impossible, then we're going to spend our lives in frustration knowing that we're not going to ever achieve what he really tells us we have to do. You shall be perfect. The better answer, of course, is to know that the word perfect is used in the Bible with several different meanings. It can mean complete or finished. In fact, that's the way it's used in Hebrews 2, verse 10. And in that verse, we're told that Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. There is a sense in which you can say Jesus was not always the perfect Savior. There's there's nothing discrediting about that. He was not yet the perfect Savior until he suffered for us, and then he completed the work which God had ordained for him to do. The word perfect also, as used in the scripture, can mean mature or full grown. And Paul, as well as others, use that term to signify Christians who have developed maturity of character to the point where they could actually be called grown-up Christians, adult Christians, mature Christians. Now, here's why I'm talking about this. Several passages in the New Testament 
present the idea of perfection or being perfect. And when we see those, we are challenged to measure ourselves by what we're told. How do we see ourselves when we look into the mirror of God's word? Do we see perfection, maturity, or do we see imperfection and immaturity? I think the only way that you could honestly answer that would be to take two different tests. You don't like to take tests, and I don't either. But these are simple tests, and they only are comprised of three questions in each of the two tests. But they're very important. The first of those tests is the test of belief. And the question is, are we perfect in understanding? Are we perfect in understanding? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, Paul writes, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. And so Paul is saying, don't be a child, don't be a, an infant in understanding. And obviously he's talking about understanding God's will and what we ought to do to make ourselves acceptable to God. You know, children aren't able to understand some things at a certain age. It doesn't do much good to talk to a two-year-old about income tax. Maybe not even a 20-year-old. But with understanding and age, people begin to understand the things they are ought to understand. As maturity comes, so does understanding. I was thinking about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. And, and that's a chapter that we largely focus only on love. But here's another important part of it. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul is making a contrast, isn't he? As a child, I spoke and thought one way, and as a mature person, I don't speak like a child. I don't think like a child. I don't reason like a child. Well, we recall that in that letter to the Corinthians, Paul had to deal with some Corinthians who were acting like little children because they were having childish contentions with each other. There was envy, there was strife, there were divisions among them. There was even a willingness to go to court with each other in, before human judges. And, and, and the, the list could go on and on. And no wonder Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1 that he had to speak to them as babes in Christ. Shouldn't have been, but they were acting like babes. You know, we don't expect Christians to become spiritually mature immediately. It does take time. But they must not remain babes in Christ. They, they have to grow. And if they don't grow, then there's something wrong. I've told this before, but you've forgotten, so I'm going to tell it again. 
Years ago, when I lived in La Mesa, one Sunday afternoon, a woman called, an older woman, well past 80. She had been a member of the church for decades, and she'd been having a conversation with one of her friends about a relatively simple biblical matter. And evidently, she must have gotten frustrated about her ability, so she said to me, Brother Han, what do we believe about that? Think about it, folks. You'll get it. What do we believe about that? She didn't know what she believed. She should have, but she didn't. And what she wanted to do was for me to tell her what we should believe rather than her having her own belief. It's a tragedy to see Christians who don't have the development of understanding even after years of being in Christ. Second question, are we perfect in distinguishing between right and wrong? You know, the writer of Hebrews had to verbally chastise his first readers because of their failure to mature spiritually. In fact, he wrote, and wouldn't you hate for somebody to say this about you? You have become dull of hearing. You are dull of hearing, he said. Hebrews 5.11. And the next verse, he tells them that they really should have matured to the point of being able to teach others, yet they needed to be taught again the first principles of the oracles of God. Isn't that sad? You, you ought to be a teacher, and yet you need to be taught all over again because you haven't matured in being able to distinguish between right and wrong. You see, without spiritual maturity, there is some real danger. Why? Look at Hebrews 5 for just a moment, if you will. If you look at Hebrews 5, look at verse 14. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. One translation puts it this way, their faculties are trained to practice to distinguish right and wrong. Do we need that today? Well, we live in a time where many are promoting wrong as right and right as wrong. You can hear it every day on the news, can't you? But let me tell you this, it's not new. It, it didn't start in the 20th or 21st century. It's an old problem. Isaiah 5 verse 20, the prophet wrote, of those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There are always going to be people who want to reverse things and make you think that what God says is good is really bad and what God says is bad is really good. But you have to be mature enough to know the difference so as not to be caught up in that. The immature can easily be misled by false teachers. Question three, are we perfect in resisting those false doctrines? You see, here's the connection with what I just mentioned, and you heard the reading from Ephesians 4. 
Paul describes in Ephesians 4 the functions that were to help the church to be built up. Look in your Bible, if you will, at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, and look at verses 13 and 14. We just heard the reading through verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Always going to be those false teachers. Peter said that, didn't he, in his letter. As there have been, there are now, and he could have said, and there always will be. They're always going to be false teachers who promote false doctrines. And mature Christians, that is perfect Christians, are not troubled by that because they don't waver or vacillate when it comes to their beliefs. They're on solid ground. Compromise for the mature Christian is out of the question. And it doesn't make any difference what our family believes or what society believes or what co-workers believe. None of those things matter. We're going to stay right where we are. That doesn't mean that we are closed-minded. Rather that we have done what 1 Thessalonians 5.21 commands us to do. Test all things. Prove all things. And then hold on to what's good. We're not like chameleons, <laughs> that little creature that changes sometimes in its environment. And Christians cannot afford to be that kind of people that simply vacillate between different beliefs because they're popular or because it's what most people think we ought to believe. Now we have to go to test number two. We talked about the test of belief. How about the test of behavior? It will say a lot about us whether we're mature or not. And the first question would be, are we perfect in overcoming evil with good? That's where we started in this lesson. So go back to Matthew 5:48 again, and I want you to look again. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus has been talking about the truth about loving enemies, doing good to those who hate us, even praying for those who persecute us. We have to ask ourselves, can we do that? Are, are we mature enough to love those who hate us? Are we mature enough that when people mistreat us, that rather than condemn them to hell, we actually pray for them? The immature person wants vengeance. <laughs> he wants to get even. In fact, the immature person doesn't want to just get even. He wants to do more than get even. He wants to hurt more than he's been hurt. That's not the way of Christ. It's not the way of the Father who is complete himself. What, what was the perfect Father's attitude? He extended mercy to us when we were his enemies. He, he, let me be frank, he could have said easily, 
to hell everybody. Everybody's going to hell. But he didn't. In fact, he would go through the agony of seeing the Son of God die on the cross because he wanted us to be reconciled to him, not separated. Second question, are we perfect in control of the tongue? Look at James, the, the third chapter for just a moment. James 3 and verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. If we're careful when we speak, then we're mature in the use of the tongue. If we are careless in the use of the tongue, we're not mature. We're talking about children, you know, there may be some parents here who experience what many parents have experienced. If your children were going to a public school and came home when they were very young and the first time they came home and they said one of those words that you didn't think they should ever say, they picked that up because they were immature. They didn't even know what it meant when they said it. Christians have to be able to use the tongue properly. You know, there are people who seem to be proud of the fact that they speak their mind. Well, I just say what I'm thinking. I believe that most of the people who hear them can't share their pride about that. They would just as soon not have that kind of treatment. Matthew 12, 37 presents a very somber warning to us. Our Lord said, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Seems to me that there is no in-between place there. He doesn't say your words don't matter, don't worry about them. He says the way you talk, the words you use will either justify you or condemn you, one or the other. Third and final question. Are we perfect in recognizing our imperfection? That sounds, sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But it isn't really. Turn to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul, in verse 15, begins, Therefore, let as many as are mature have this mind. What mind, Paul? We'll go back to verse 12. And he says, uh, in, in uh, excuse me, in Philippians 12, I better get to the right chapter, Philippians 12, uh, Philippians uh, 4, verse 12, <laughs> Philippians 3, 12 through 14, I'll get it right. He says, not that I have already attained or already perfected, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Notice, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let as many of us uh, as are mature have this kind of mind. 
that, that we don't dwell in the past, that we press on. And, and while we're doing that, we realize that we're not perfect, at, that is flawless, that we're, we're moving hopefully to more and more spiritual maturity. And that we're never satisfied. Some of, some of the greatest men that I have ever known have been the humblest of all. And would honestly confess that they were still learning and that they, they, they had much in which they needed to improve in their lives. There's always room to grow. And we need to be eager to do so. You know, when Paul wrote to the church in Colossae and was telling them about preaching Christ, he says in Colossians 1.28, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Why, Paul? The rest of the verse, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And so I would say to you tonight, let's hear the warnings, let's heed the teachings so that we can be perfect in Christ. And I close with this. You will never be mature in Christ outside of Christ. And so if you're not in Christ, having done those things that will put you in Christ, and there's only one way to get in Christ, and that is to be baptized into him. After you have come to realize that he is your only hope of salvation, he is the Savior and that you're willing to turn away from the life you've been living to turn toward the life he wants you to live, and that you are willing then to, to pronounce before men your faith that he is the Son of God and to be buried in water so that your sins can be washed away. Can't start maturing until you're in Christ. And dear Christian friend, what are you doing to be mature in Christ? Are you working toward the goal of being perfect in Christ? If you need to respond to the invitation, we'd welcome you to do it either to put on Christ or to ask your brothers and sisters to pray with you and for you. Will you come?